where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. Here now is your host, Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to the Oregon Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Eager, and we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk to you about today. It's just me, no interview today. have some uh, interesting potential interviews in the pipeline for you, and we'll have those coming for you soon. The things I wanted to touch on today, though, are why in the heck was Gavin Newsom, California's governor in Bend, Oregon, literally one week ago exactly right now, it's 9.30 a.m. in Bend, Saturday, July 8th right now, at this time he was wrapping up an event with the Democratic Party of Oregon here in Bend at the Oregon State University Cascades campus, part of a tour through some other Western states that we'll get into in more detail here in a moment. The other main topic I wanted to talk about is Oregon public employees, or a big chunk of them, will get uh, two large raises in an agreement struck between the state of Oregon and the union. I want to take a minute to note that and then talk about how that comes to be and how it's kind of the, the big payoff for the cycle of tax and spend that the state of Oregon basically is anymore. So those are the two big topics. At the end, I may have a little update on some of the federal grand jury stuff I've been working on, as well as Oregon Department of Justice, little updates as to those various items that are in play in terms of the scandal-rama here in Oregon that we spend a lot of time covering here at the Oregon Roundup. If you're not yet subscribed to the Oregon Roundup newsletter and podcast, you can do that by going to oregonroundup.substack.com. If you'd like to become a paid subscriber, that helps a lot. Basically, it helps me justify doing more of these things. Every week, there are many, many stories that I and issues that I would like to write about or podcast about. But I don't have time to do that because I actually have to make money. And doing this makes a little bit of money, and I appreciate everyone who subscribes. But the more of you who become paid subscribers, it frees me up to spend more time doing this kind of stuff and eventually hire more people to do this kind of stuff and grow our reach to get news out there that Oregonians and other folks around the country don't get to hear many other places. So that's my pitch. All right, Gavin Newsom, Bend, Oregon. Two Fridays ago, Friday, June 30th, I got a call from a a friend of mine who said that this friend had heard that Gavin Newsom was going to be in Bend the next morning. And she said, I assume you could just go outside and smell brioche in the air, a, a reference to Newsom's having gone to the French Laundry restaurant in the Bay Area when restaurant he had closed restaurants down statewide during the COVID pandemic. I got a good chuckle out of that. So I did a little research and uh, in fact found out that he was coming to Ben the next morning. I think I broke the news on Twitter that he was coming to Bend. Obviously, the folks who were invited, uh, which were people close to the Democratic Party of Oregon, knew about it. They had been invited, but I don't believe it had been reported anywhere else. And so that's a major scoop, I think, for the Oregon Roundup when we're able to report that Gavin Newsom's coming to Bend, Oregon. 
and he was here the morning of July 1st, had an event with the Democratic Party of Oregon up at an academic hall at Oregon State University Cascades campus, which apparently makes its space available for political events, which is noteworthy. It seems like his talk was fairly anodyne. He talked about the Supreme Court rulings, held a session, and I'll post a photo of this with uh, the show notes, but I'm looking at it right now, and the attendees appear not to be incredibly diverse, ethnically or racially speaking, which is also noteworthy. Newsom was here in Bend prior to kicking off some stops that were more widely publicized, which he's billing and the press is dutifully billing as his red state tour. From Bend, he went to Boise, and then he was going to go to uh, Montana, where his family vacations. You may recall that he got into some hot water vacationing in Montana last 4th of July, soon after Montana had ended up on a state of California, don't travel there at taxpayer expense list because Montana is a Republican state. And I believe that the list correlated mostly to states that had adopted abortion laws that were contrary to what Gavin Newsom prefers. And he was up there last year over the 4th of July, and he was stopping in Bend en route to Montana again for this 4th of July. In any event, after coming to decidedly not not red Bend in decidedly not red Oregon, he uh, began his red state tour going to Boise, then Montana. I believe he was going to stop in Salt Lake City after vacationing in Montana, and presumably on his way back to his home state of California. The purpose of the event, and the Bend event is really kind of an outlier here, and I'll get into that here in a second. But obviously the focus of his focus, Newsom's focus, as a messaging exercise of the trip was to go to quote-unquote red states and show that he was standing up for his values and Democrats' values in these red states. Of course, at least in Boise, he met with exclusively Democrats. And Boise is a pretty blue place in a pretty red state. So it's not like he was actually going and talking to Republicans in these states. He was uh, just talking to hardcore Democrat Party supporters in these states. But at the same time, he got his message out there that he's, he's out there doing stuff over the 4th of July weekend, which is, tends to be a pretty slow political time of year in terms of what candidates are doing. He got some good headlines out of it from his perspective and reminded people that he's out there and basically asking the question, why is Gavin Newsom doing this? The same question I'm asking and trying to answer now and getting in the news. Obviously, he's the governor of California. He's going to places that are not California, although are now home to many Californians in part because of the poor governance that... Gavin Newsom has exercised in California. So it was kind of like a tour of expats of California in these states to which they've fled. But that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to be seen as standing up to, you know, Republican-governed states and identifying with Democrats that are in these Republican-governed states. 
and to get headlines. An example of which was Politico, left-leaning national political online publication, ran a piece entitled Gavin Newsom's Red State Hustle. That's exactly the kind of coverage that Newsom was hoping to get out of this, out of this trip. And so what is he positioning himself for? He is, and there's been a lot of speculation about this, and I'm not sure I'm better situated than anyone else to talk about it, but I will anyway. He's positioning himself, I believe, and I think this is fairly clear, to step in as the Democratic Party's nominee for president or position himself to become the nominee in the event the wheels fall off the Biden operation. The makings of that theory come from a couple of data points. One is that Biden remains pretty unpopular among the general electorate. His approval ratings are pretty low. And remarkably, a lot of Democrats, a majority of Democrats, don't want him to run for re-election in 2024. And yet he is running for re-election in 2024, which creates this weird dynamic where I think Democrats acknowledge what is completely unavoidable, which is that Biden just looks and acts too old and too confused in some cases to run for president again and to serve another four-year term after this one is done. That is just pretty doggone clear just by looking at pictures. I came across a, a story also from Politico why Biden world thinks the I-95 bridge repair hold is the key to re-election. So this is a story about how I-95 is like the I-5 of the East Coast. It runs up and down the East Coast, freeway, huge, awful. If you've ever been on it, I'm sorry, not fun. But part of a bridge that was near Philadelphia collapsed a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago. And they actually got it fixed in relatively short order. So this was seen as a kind of victory of, I guess, the Biden administration, but also local Democrat officials who got the job done quickly, which was newsworthy. The fact that it is newsworthy that they could get the bridge fixed quickly is it says more <laughs> than the fact that they got it fixed. But this Politico article is, you know, a way, an attempt by the Biden administration to kind of position themselves as doers and as people who fix things, and that this is the way that Biden's going to campaign, kind of testing that messaging in this story. And it's a very positive story about Biden, as one might expect from Politico, but the, the picture that accompanies it, and I'll put this in the show notes, features Joe Biden at a president of the United States lectern. He may or may not be talking about the I-95 issue at this point. The point is it's a picture of him talking. And I swear to you, this picture makes him look 105 years old. The only thing I can think of when I see this picture is... Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, except Mr. Burns is what Mr. Burns was, I think, much more with it in terms of what his actual, what he actually said. But the picture itself, Biden just kind of has this look, looking up, mouth agape, kind of gesturing generally with his right hand in a way that I think just 
makes him look really old. You put that together with, you know, the video of him falling at an event a couple weeks ago. It's it's just inescapable. The images are inescapable. Voters get it. Voters understand he's too old. They know people his age. They know that people his age should not be running for president. And even and even Democrats, you know, they, they aren't going to come out and, in many cases, uh, challenge their incumbent president. But they think it, too, and some of the polling you know, bears that out with the majority of them not wanting him to run for re-election. So you have Biden, who is of advanced and obviously advanced age and frailty and at least occasional pretty profound confusion in terms of where he's walking at any given moment or what he's saying at any given moment. And so there's this sense that I think that something could happen to Biden, right? So, and hopefully this doesn't happen, but he could have something happen where it is so obviously bad that it's clear to everyone he can't run or something happens to him health-wise that makes it literally impossible for him to run or these these events keep piling up to the point where the Democrats are saying, no, we, uh, we just can't do this because it's become so overwhelmingly bad. The optics are so bad that we can't chance Biden running against whomever the Republican nominee is. So you have that. You have kind of Biden teetering, literally, on the edge in terms of kind of his the appearance and I think the truth of his age and his retention of his faculties or lack thereof. And then you have the fact that his vice president, Kamala Harris, is just profoundly, profoundly bad. And she makes, honestly, less sense than Joe does. And she doesn't even have age as an excuse. I don't know how to quantify just how bad Kamala Harris is as a politician. I think we could take myself or any listener to this podcast right now and put them in the position of vice president. And that person would do a better job of not embarrassing the administration than Kamala Harris does. She's just atrocious. And she, she polls poorly very, very poorly. I saw someone say that she was polling worse than Dick Cheney did right after Dick Cheney shot his friend while they were hunting. I remember that. You know, the Iraq war was going bad. Cheney was getting a lot of the blame. Then Cheney goes hunting and shoots his friend in the face accidentally. And it was just like, wow, that's kind of a bad stretch for any politician, let alone the vice president. But Kamala Harris is polling worse than Cheney was at that at that point. So she's she's not an acceptable or desirable uh, alternative to Biden. And the Democrats know that. They know that if she were to, you know, if something were to happen to Biden and she were to be the nominee, she would probably have a pretty tough time against whomever the Republican uh, nominee is, even given the fact that the Republicans are likely to screw that up too. But she's by no means a strong candidate or likely to be a strong candidate for president. The weird stuff going on with Biden and Hunter Biden, Joe and Hunter Biden, 
Hunter, where do I start? As everyone knows, drug addict, crack addict. He has done a lot of weird and unlawful things. He pled guilty to, recently, to federal tax evasion or tax fraud, I forget which, charges and gun charges because he incorrectly or dishonestly filled out a form saying he was not addicted to drugs when, in fact, he was. And you can't, I guess, possess a firearm if you're addicted to drugs. And so he pled guilty to that a couple of weeks ago. A lot of people think he got off easy. I, I honestly don't know if he did or not. I don't know what kind of punishment folks usually get in those circumstances. But the point is that he's an admitted violator of federal law on at least two occasions. He's got this, he fathered a kid with a, a stripper, apparently. His daughter's name is Navy, and he just entered into a settlement agreement with Navy's mom, whereby, uh, whereby Navy would not be allowed to use the last name Biden. Navy, Navy's mom would get paid some by Biden, and some of the compensation uh, will be in the, in the form of some of Hunter Biden's paintings. I know that he's a, a, among his other pursuits, he's a painter. has seen quite a lot of success in selling his paintings for pretty large sums that artists that may be considered more talented than he would love to get for their paintings. And gosh, I wonder how that happened. Joe Biden refuses to acknowledge Navy Biden or not Navy Biden, Navy anything other than Biden, as his granddaughter. There was a story in the New York Times and about this kind of digging into Navy's story and the story of her mom. And when you're Joe Biden and the New York Times is writing a lengthy story about the granddaughter you won't recognize, that's, that's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. Hunter Biden also served on the board of Burisma, which was this Ukrainian energy company, He's got these ties to the Chinese. There's just a whole lot of stuff flying around about Hunter, some of which implicates directly Joe Biden. I don't know what's ever going to come of all that. Some of it sure seems fishy to me. But the, the point is that Hunter is a very significant political and potentially legal liability for Joe Biden. And at the same time, Joe Biden appears to be drawing closer to Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is apparently staying in the White House sometimes, if not all the time. He's having Hunter Biden accompany him to state dinners with foreign leaders. He went up, you know, Hunter Biden went up to Camp David with him over the 4th of July weekend, etc. If I'm a kind of Democrat political operative, which I'm not, but if I were to imagine myself as such, I would be wondering, Joe, why are you, why are you so publicly embracing Hunter Biden during this news cycle? The response is, you know, because he's his son and he loves him and that totally makes sense. But there would be this sense, and I strongly suspect this is something that eats at Democrats, that, you know, fine, but don't make it so darn public. And then you have, over the last few days, this kind of cocaine gate thing that's happened in the, in the White House where the Secret Service found a small amount of cocaine in a bag somewhere in the White House, and the location of that bag seems to keep moving around. Of course, people made the, the, the connection between this bag of cocaine and potentially the uh, Hunter Biden, who is an admitted addict of 
cocaine uh, and spends a lot of time in the White House. Who knows whose it is? There was some reporting early on that <laughs> said that, oh, shoot, we're not going to be able to figure out who it is. Yeah. So who knows whose it is? It could be a visitor that came into the White House. It could be could belong to someone in the family. Who knows? The White House press secretary was asked yesterday repeatedly, you know, can you say conclusively that the cocaine does not belong to a member of the Biden family? And she wouldn't answer that question, which, which isn't great. You'd like to think she would, I would think, what's her name, Catherine Jean-Pierre, that she would, before going out to that podium in the press conference, she would say, okay, guys, can I unequivocally say that the cocaine does not belong to a member of the Biden family and kind of put that part of this to bed? I don't know if she asked that question. She should have asked that question. And if she asked that question, apparently the answer was no. Uh, you can't say that. And if so, then that's, that's really bad. Because if she knew it wasn't or if people she were telling her, people with the ability to know were telling her that this is, does not absolutely does not belong to the Biden family, which doesn't involve asking a whole lot of people and is easily, relatively easily determined, you know, that's a tough, a tough deal. How hard is it to come out and just say, yeah, no, this does not belong to anyone in the Biden family. You know, this investigation is ongoing, blah, 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 et cetera. But she didn't say that. That's all to say that this Biden administration with Biden at the helm is extremely vulnerable right now. There's just a whole heck of a lot of stuff that could go wrong for him that would make him patently unelectable in 2024, either because of scandal or because of physical condition in his age. Kamala is not a, an acceptable alternative. So what Newsom is doing, I think, is to present himself as, the, as an alternative and to get around to these states out here in the West and elsewhere, make a name for himself out there. I mean, obviously he has a name for himself, but just keep his name in the news. You know, there were, I saw quotes from his event in Boise where one of the attendees was like, oh, I think he's great presidential material et cetera, et cetera. He's, you know, on these trips and at these events, he's supporting Joe Biden explicitly, repeatedly, and faithfully, which is smart because he doesn't want to challenge the incumbent president so long as the incumbent president thinks he's still running for president. But if Biden falters further, Newsom is there. He's available. He's making it clear that he's available. And it, it may be that if the wheels really fall off, and I don't know if the Democrats are trying to get Joe to stand down or not, that's a theory that's out there. I really don't know. But whether it's the Democrats trying to get him to stand down uh, and showing that Newsom is, a, is an acceptable alternative who is loyal to Joe Biden and that Joe Biden maybe gracefully could say, yeah, you know what, I'm old, not feeling great. I don't have it in me anymore now that I've thought about it. But this guy, Newsom, is, is a star. Let's have him run instead. Maybe that's what's going on, or maybe something outside of Joe Biden's control happens that renders him unelectable. You know, maybe in the process, tars Kamala to such an extent that she's patently not going to make it either. I think that's what's going on. I think that's why Gavin Newsom was in Bend. I think that's why Gavin Newsom was in Boise. 
Salt Lake City and why he keeps doing this stuff to kind of keep his name in the national news. He's running a shadow campaign for president without challenging the incumbent president. And we'll just have to see if that is something that works out for Newsom. You know, it's a pretty clever play, I think. And I I don't, I think that the fact that he's got these state parties involved means that the powers that be in Democrat politics are on board with him doing this. That says something too. Okay, so then why bend, just logistically why bend on his way to Boise and then Montana? Neither here nor there, but I wonder if he was driving. I guess he lives in Sacramento and or the Bay Area, which is where he served as mayor, of course, of San Francisco before he was governor. So I guess if he was driving to Montana, it would make sense to stop off in Bend, potentially, kind of, sort of. And then his event in Boise was about, you know, it looked like it was about seven, eight hours after the Bend event, which would give him plenty of time to drive from Bend to Boise, driving time about five hours. That's the only thing I can think of, because you wouldn't, if you're flying, I guess he'd probably almost certainly fly private. So Bend would be a reasonable stopping point then as well. I wonder if he was driving. Anyway, that's enough about Gavin Newsom and his roadshow trying to convince the American people that good to at least contemplate a governor of a state that's hemorrhaging population as the next president of the United States. Oregon public employees get a big raise. Here's the headline from the Oregonian yesterday, July 7th, state workers union, Oregon officials agree on contract for big raises. On Friday, the Oregon branch of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees said it gave a nod to a package that would provide, quote, unprecedented, end quote, cost of living raises for the state workers, quote, amidst the rapid rise in inflation and the current statewide staffing crisis, end quote. Under a new contract, state workers are set to receive a 6.5% cost of living raise in December of this year followed by another 6.55% increase in early 2025. The state will also hand out one-time bonuses of $1,500 to state employees in September as part of the agreement to offset the higher cost of living, quote, the union said. So big raises, 13% plus uh, raise for state employees between this year and 2025. They get a $1,500 I guess, stimulus payment this September just for being them. You know, those are big dollars. And even AFSCME, the union, says these are unprecedented. And, you know, they're crowing about the delivering value for their, for their members, which makes sense given their role in all this. Here's the thing to know about this is that this is the payoff, right? So there's this cycle in Oregon, and that frankly dominates Oregon politics and dominates California politics and Washington politics and elsewhere, blue state politics across the United States, where public employee unions take money from their members, sometimes willingly, sometimes a little bit less than willingly, and then gives a bunch of it to Democrats running for governor in the state legislature and lower level statewide positions, so that the people that are bargaining with the same public employee unions for contracts 
are beholden to the people, quote unquote, against whom they are bargaining. The same interests on both sides of the bargaining table. And this is the, the completion, the payoff of that whole cycle. It's gross. Absolutely gross. Yes, there's inflation. But look at the performance of Oregon state government. Is there any justification, honestly, for you know these kinds of increases? Are you seeing a 13% increase over two years in your income that you can bank on getting a $1,500 bonus in September? That's pretty good stuff. And it shows you why this whole thing works the way it does. And I've been a Republican my whole voting life. I am by no means enamored with the way the Republican Party works in Oregon or elsewhere. But I can tell you that this thing right here is why I will never vote for a Democrat unless somehow that Democrat comes out as strongly against this payoff, this type of payoff. Because if you're voting for a Democrat, in Oregon at least, you are voting to complete this cycle and to ensure that public employee unions continue to plow money into, or pardon me, the state continues to plow money into public employee unions that plow money into Democrat campaigns and just keep the whole thing going. And all the while, the state continues to provide worse and worse services to the people it says it's trying to, it's trying to help, when in reality, it's just a big scheme to enrich public employees and their unions in exchange for putting people, the, putting Democrats in power and retain, helping them to retain power and all the stuff that comes with that. And it's, it's just disgusting. And it's one of the things that keeps me doing the stuff that I do and beating my head against the walls against which I beat it. Cause this, this thing is just gross and it's nothing against public employees. I know many of them. I am related to some of them. They're good people. It's just, this system is completely and utterly broken and they rely on the fact that, you know, the cost of living increase, you know, these big historic unprecedented raises, they don't make much news. You know, this was a short Oregonian story, but it, it's completing the circle. And I think it's important that we all are aware that it's happening and what the overall impact of it is. Before we wrap up here, I wanted to update you on some of the scandal Rama stuff. So I ran a piece last week about how Oregon DOJ has objected to the subpoenas from the federal grand jury, which apparently will be or is looking into potential federal criminal charges arising from the relationship between La Moda, the cannabis company, and former Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan. That came about because I asked all these state agencies that had been subpoenaed to send me any documents they had produced in response to the subpoena. Most of them said they didn't have any. The Department of Revenue, I think it was, actually said, oh, here you go. Here's this letter that went from DOJ to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office objecting. That's great that they gave it to me. I think we broke that news. I broke that news. I don't think anyone else had reported on the existence of that letter 
The letter objects to a fairly wide range of issues in the subpoenas. It appears as of now that no documents have actually been produced to the federal grand jury. We'll see what happens. As I put in my piece, it'll depend in part on how aggressive the U.S. Attorney's Office wants to be in pushing this stuff. Oftentimes, kind of discovery disputes between the parties in things like this. Oregon probably doesn't have a great big incentive to comply with these things. It's just going to lead to more embarrassing information coming out about LaModa's role in all kinds of stuff at the state level. They're not going to make it a priority unless the U.S. Attorney's Office forces them to make it a priority. It should be a priority because Oregonians have by no means received justice on this or any of the other really questionable things that have gone on in terms of the way that election campaigns have been funded for Democrats and the way decisions have been impacted by those funders, by those who have power in state government. So we'll stay on that on that issue. The other thing kind of pending out there is Oregon DOJ has said that it may investigate or it's it's considering investigating the Democratic Party of Oregon in conjunction with the $500,000 donation that it received from Nishad Singh, who is who was last fall when the donation was made, an executive for now bankrupt cryptocurrency firm FTX. Oregon DOJ is, in fact, investigating Singh with regard to or that $500,000 donation, which was made in all likelihood and allegedly in his name, but likely with funds that were provided to him by FTX or FTX's CEO, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. You know, I've argued that Oregon DOJ has to look into this. The Oregon Secretary of State's office said that they're closing it in that really, really, saying we're not pursuing any criminal stuff in that really, really hokey settlement agreement they reached with the DPO. You know, speak, talk about people negotiating on the same side of an issue. It's critical that Oregon DOJ look into that because Oregonians have not received anything like justice. And maybe there is no criminality, but maybe there is. There sure is smoke. I keep asking Oregon DOJ's spokesman whether there's an update. He told me there's no update. So I'll keep asking if there's an update and I will let you know when there's an update. There's no real particular definitive timeline for Oregon DOJ to take action on this. It really should. There's no reason to wait. And the longer they wait with it, the more likely it is that they're just trying to make everyone forget that that was even an issue. So that's why I keep asking. It can't just be let go as an issue. And if Oregon DOJ is refusing to investigate potential criminality by the Democratic Party of Oregon, then they should just say so, so that Oregonians know that that decision's been made rather than just kind of waiting out the clock. That's all I have for you today on the Oregon Roundup podcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I enjoyed talking with you. We'll have another episode up soon, probably next week, and we'll have newsletters coming out on all kinds of fun stuff. Stay tuned. Again, if you haven't subscribed to the Oregon Roundup newsletter and podcast, you can do that on oregonroundup.substack.com. Appreciate listening. Appreciate your signing up as well to subscribe on to the podcast on your podcast app of choice. Give us a five-star review while you're at it so other people can hear about us and we can reach more people who need to hear what we have to say. 
Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.